Hello, and welcome to the G2 podcast. Cheeriest start to any service you'll ever hear, innit? <laughs> Let's all confess and feel sad about ourselves. Um, can I do a quick roll call? Has anyone met a royal? Who are we saying? Who have you, who have you met? The Queen? A couple of the things. <laughs> the Queen as well. Oh. I've only got Princess Anne, and it was in a shopping centre in Cambridge. She walked past me, and I was six, and it was, it was, it was fine. It was fine. Um, <laughs> but you probably have met more important people generally, and more powerful people, generally. We have powerful people in the room. We have our next future Prime Minister in the room, Jason Rose, depending on... <laughs> That's very exciting. We have Addo in the room somewhere, which if you've ever seen him bench press, is like power personified into one peck. It's incredible. Um, but you might have met more powerful people in like courts and stuff. You might have met a judge. Uh, he was quite a lot of power in settling disputes and deciding sentencing. I looked at the power list, Edward Enninful. It's the most powerful person on that, who's the chief editor of Vogue. Quite a lot of cultural power and cultural influence. Um, but I'm a bit of a politics nerd. So whenever someone talks to me about power, I go back to all my politicsy stuff. And power in politics is all about the ability to influence someone who doesn't want to be influenced. So if I went to you, Luke, and I said, I'd really like that millionaire shortbread, and I'd like it, <laughs> but you didn't want to give it to me, power would be me getting it off you despite what you wanted me to. So it's like, what are the reasons why I would be able to go to Luke and take the amazing millionaire shortbread off him? Despite him saying, actually, I don't want to give it to you, would it be, if I was a massive country and Luke was a small country, would it be, I've just got more soldiers, I'm stronger financially, I've got cultural power. If I was like a kid in a, kid in a playground, I'd be more popular in school, potentially, or, I don't, don't know, just bigger, general. Um, <laughs> But the point of that is more that power relationships exist in every relationship we do. So power is all around us. But our series is all about truth to power. Um, it's all about prophets speaking to kings, um, hence the royalty question. Because there's probably not a time when we're going to go to a royal. When I saw Princess Anne, I didn't ask her about economic and foreign policy. Um, I didn't feel like it was the time, and I was also six. Um, <laughs> but if we hit the slide... It says in Luke 12, 11 to 12, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So we're going to look at loads of prophets and how they interacted with kings and how they brought some of God's light into those leaderships and into those positions of power and how God's truth was able to be used in that sense and how God was able to use those prophets to bring that about. And when we're thinking about those power relationships from A to B, from me to Luke, we're talking about prophets being able to go against it. So even though we've got kings who are the most powerful people in the land they're in, and we've got these prophets who are still powerful but beneath them, how can those prophets speak upwards and speak that truth to power? Because God, in his authority and his ultimate power, surpasses all of those different real powers that we can see on a human level. And when we can use godly massive, overwhelming power, then we can see how those power relationships can be broken. So, today's passage is 2 Samuel 12, if you want to get it up on all of your electronic Bibles. But before we start, we do need a bit of context, because this is a story that's quite specific to do with David. Um, and if we, do, if we launch straight in, the prophecy is kind of lost on us. So, where we are is we have King David, who's currently king of Israel, David of David and Goliath fame, 
Um, Saul and Jonathan have been killed, so he's become king. And he's doing quite well, to be fair to him. He's just conquered Jerusalem. He's brought the Ark of Covenant back to Israel. He's united Israel. Things are on the up. So he's quite pleased with himself. Um, Currently, in 2 Samuel 12, the Israelites are fighting the Ammonite capital of Rabbah. Um, But even though all the soldiers are there, David's still in Jerusalem. I'm not entirely sure why. Got his feet up. And he sees from his bedroom window a lady called Bathsheba, who is that woman on the right who is doing that thing you do in super, like big shopping centres when you get your feet eating your... The fish eating your feet, isn't it? Um, it kind of died out. It was quite a big thing like 10 years ago, and I don't really do it anymore. Um, so Bathsheba's in a bath, bathing, and David, despite what it looks like on that painting, is incredibly attracted to her. Um, also, a bath on a roof. Um, Chris, I don't know about architectural design, but is that something that often happens? It's possible, not very often. No. Swimming pools and roofs. Fair play. Fair play. Anyway, so David's talking and sees Bathsheba out the window and is weirdly attracted to her and decides to go take Bathsheba back to his place uh, and sleeps with her. And Bathsheba falls pregnant. And the problem is, is that Bathsheba's got a husband called Uriah. And Uriah is fighting in this war against the Ammonite in the capital of Rabbah. And so David's a bit stuck. So what he does is he calls Uriah back from war. He says, okay, you can come back, reunite with your wife, you'll sleep with your wife, and then she'll become pregnant because of that. And then problem solved, Uriah will think it's his child. We're all fine. The problem then happens that Uriah doesn't go back. So he's really noble, he's got quite a lot of integrity. He says, I'm not going to leave my fellow soldiers on the front line. I'm not going to come back with you. So David's a bit stuck again, and has to come up with a new solution. It's a bit traitors, this, isn't it? So David's new solution is that what he's going to do is organise for Uriah to be killed in battle. So then if Uriah is killed, Bathsheba becomes a widow. Bathsheba becomes a widow. She needs a husband. David can step into that place. Be Bathsheba's new husband. Now we're sorted. So that's where we're at as we go into 2 Samuel 12. David's basically organised for Bathsheba's husband to be killed because he's cheated on his wives with her. Um, she's pregnant and he needs a way out of it. So we now meet Nathan. So if we can get this like, passage up, that'd be great. So Nathan has been sent to David and is launching into this prophecy with him. So it says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the, for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realised the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, the prophet, to name him Jediah. So to just quickly re-explain the prophecy and what has happened, basically this is a story of complete conviction. So Nathan has gone to... David and convicted him and shared with him what he's done wrong and shared his sin. Um, David has confessed. And then this is a story of restoration, rehabilitation and redemption in the end there with David and Solomon and the Lord still loving him. And I think what we could do is we could sit here and go by the story scene by scene, as we sometimes do, and that's sometimes really helpful. But I think in this case, it might be a little bit more helpful to go through character by character. So to try and explore them a little bit individually and see what we can get by exploding them in that sense. So to start with, with Nathan, and I think we need to think about wisdom from friends. And it says there, Proverbs 27.6 is, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiple kisses. And this person in Nathan is really fascinating. And firstly, it's fascinating in the fact that Nathan has this quite cyclical role in David's life. So five chapters earlier in 2 Samuel 7, Nathan has gone to David already and done this quite great blessing on him. So he said, all these great things are going to happen. You're going to be elevated and you're going to have all of this power. Then five chapters later, Nathan's come to David and said, this is your confession. I'm going to convict you. These are what the bad things you've done. This is your sin. And at the very end of this passage, we see Nathan coming to David again and going, this is your son Solomon and he will become the king of Israel. And he's launched another blessing on him, another prophecy on him. And you can see that arc, can't you, of starting in a place of greatness, going through the sin, being restored and redeemed. And Nathan goes through the same role with David alongside the entire thing. And I think when we think about friendship and we think about why God 
would have used Nathan in this way as kind of like a vehicle to journey that with David with, it immediately makes us think about friendships we've got. Because God could have just gone to David himself and said, this is what I've decreed, this is what I'm saying. But he is using a prophet to do that. And I think as well, the fact that it's not like a negative critic, the fact that Nathan has gone and done blessings as well as convictions, add a little bit of trust on David's side in order of moving David to the place where he can be changed. Holly is going to speak in a, two, in a few weeks about King Ahab and friendship. So I'm kind of not going to go much more because he's going to speak quite a lot about how do we not surround ourselves with yes men? How do we make sure that we listen to our friends? How do we surround ourselves with good people? But almost like to plant the seed about that friendships in terms of how do our friendships interact who? How do our friendships interact how we are? How do they speak wisdom into our lives? How do we respond to that? But there's something quite specific in the way that Nathan launches his prophecy as well, and there's specifics in that that are quite interesting. I guess like the fact that Nathan talks about a sheep and a shepherd, and the fact that David was a shepherd when he was slinging stones at Goliath, that he'd understand how that worked, about the love and devotion you have to put into a sheep, that he'd understand the magnitude of what the king would have done when he said, I'm going to take that year, even though that's been loved by one owner for, for such a long time. And David as well would have been aware of what like, prophetic relationships would have been like because Samuel's already come to David, given him a prophetic word. He understands that kind of spiritual relationship. So this isn't something that's like a surprise. So God's being really specific and quite intentional in how he's moving David into a space where David can be moved. And I think the most obvious example of that is the fact that God's doing it through a story and through a parable. Because sometimes I think, I don't know how good anyone is at confrontation, but sometimes when we do confrontation and we're really headstrong and we're burning to get off our chest, we might like launch into it. And what happens is the person we're trying to confront takes a step back and tries to justify what they've done before. Because if we go in quite headstrong early doors, the person's then like, okay, I'm on the defensive now, I'm trying to justify it myself. And the way that Nathan does it by talking about a parable, inviting David to comment almost spontaneously on the parable and then gently revealing to him, actually, no, this is a story about you, is quite honouring to David's position because it allows David to do it himself. He's almost empowering to say, no, you take a bit of ownership here. You can take ownership over your confession, over your sin. And it's kind of moving him into that space almost inadvertently and quite intentionally as opposed to going in launching into the confession, launching into the conviction. And I think sometimes our relationship with God, I know my relationship with God can be a bit like that. I don't have an Emmaus Road moment where God has revealed himself to me and gone, these are all of the list of sins in your life, because I don't think God has the time, frankly. But I've got more stuff regarding the Bible and regarding prayer and regarding words from friends of God slowly nudging me towards positions and allowing me to ponder things and come to conclusions and understand God more that way. And I think it's the same situation that we've got with David, where that sometimes is a little bit more effective than someone going in quite headstrong and telling it that way. So just almost in the character of David, it's kind of like a learning in that sense about, one, about friends that Holly will touch on more, but also how do we communicate change and how have people communicated change to us? And if we've got the wrong end of the stick from it because people have communicated it badly, how can we position ourselves to have a bit more potential empathy for that? But also if we're the person who has to do the confrontation, I think there's some genuine like, life learning from that. But our second person is David. And this, I guess, is the story of why we're talking about confession and why we're talking about sin. Because David is kind of the embodiment of ultimate submission. So David did what Nathan expected him to do, and Nathan and God, I suppose, expected him to do, which is to pass judgment on someone else just to rid his guilty conscience. 
So David was presented with this hypothetical, wasn't he? He was presented with this situation that had happened. And God went, ah, what's your thoughts? And David immediately launched into quite a strong rebuke of the hypothetical scenario, saying the person's got to be put to death. And I think that's quite a vulnerable situation David was in when Nathan turned around and went, you are the man I'm talking about. Because he carried on, he went, you are the man, but also I anointed you, I gave you Israel and Judah. He launched into quite a lot that David had been given. And at the base of David's sin, at the base of David's mistakes, was this ingratitude. That he was given all of these things, but it wasn't enough. There was no riches, no power, and not enough women in the world that would have satisfied David to the extent where he wouldn't have been searching for that little bit more. And it goes on to say, you despise the commandment of the Lord. And then it goes further to say, you have despised me because of that. And I know Jesus says that if you love me, you will follow my commandments, not in a kind of a manipulative way of if you really love me, you'd follow me. But in a, the more you love me, the more you walk in relationship, the more naturally you will just follow my commandments. And it says there, doesn't it, in 1 John 1 to 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. And David would have known the Torah. He would have known what he'd done, coveting someone's wife, was violating the Torah. And he would have known that setting Uriah up to be killed was violating the Torah. It's not an issue of knowledge. It's not sure putting that into practice. But I think being a bit more human about it, so we're not the same people who are standing there passing judgment on David from afar, there's probably quite a lot of intense shame that David would have felt in that moment, the minute Nathan's gone, you are the man who's done all these things. And you've done this stuff in secret, and I'm going to re- reveal it to the whole of Israel. Because shame is one of those tricky and quite sticky emotions that we get when we feel quite isolated and quite alone and it's not one of those things where I feel guilty about something and I can repay my debts it's kind of there's something wrong with me that I can't get over because I've done something wrong and it's changed something in my character and I don't understand myself and there's something quite isolating in that and I think we kind of do need to honor David's response to the criticism that he was because it was quite a personal rebuke quite a personal conviction that he was offered and he does offer it in ultimate submission he completely fesses up he is completely submissive and we see in psalm 51 that he writes a psalm in response to this and he says have mercy on me O god according to your unfailing love according to your great compassion blot out my transgressions wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. There's a complete submission there to God's ultimate authority, and ultimate power over our lives. When we're thinking about who has the ultimate control, and we're thinking about truth to power, and God surpassing that. David, despite being convicted by someone who's below him, has completely yielded and bent to God's ultimate control over his life and he responds to that by fasting and by worshipping it's incomplete submissive he's completely submissive to it he's completely obedient to that and as I was preparing this I was thinking what is it like for me what is the thing in my life that Nathan's going to come through the door and go you are the man who's done all of this xyz abc and I was thinking about the personal, like the actions. Like there's probably stuff I've done that Nathan could point out and these that I do not want to be read out in front of G2 and revealed. But there's also not just actions I've done, sin I've committed. There's loads of stuff I haven't done. 
And social justice was something that comes to mind because it's dealing with feeling uncomfortable. So it's Nathan pointing out something to David and David having to sit there and act on feeling uncomfortable. And I was thinking about Krish Kandaya, who, if you don't know, is this theologian who talks quite a lot about refugees and social justice in that sense, but did quite a lot of work with fostering and looked after children in our care system. And he talks quite a lot about natural gas. And I'm not, a, I'm not very good at science, so um, apologies if this is wrong. But he talks about how natural gas doesn't have an odour. So what we do when, when we put carbon monoxide alarms and et cetera, et cetera, is we give it an odour so our like, brains notice it when it comes into our rooms, et cetera. So, I'm getting a nod. That's perfect. So, <laughs> so, we, so we notice it, and so we need to respond to it. But because we're really smart... After a few minutes, even though we've noticed it and it smells horrible, our brains just get used to it and it blurs back into the background again. And what we sometimes do, I think, with social justice is we hear something or we read something or we see an Instagram post or we hear about a situation that's really horrible and for about five minutes we're really torn up about it and we decide I'm going to act and I'm going to do X, Y, Z, A, B, C and then it just blurs back into the background again. And what I think we can see in the character of David is that he has been rebuked and he has been convicted, and then he does immediately go and respond to that. But how many times in our lives do we get convicted by God? Or do we hear something that we know isn't right, especially regarding social justice, and then nothing really happens as a consequence, and then it kind of just blends into the background with all the other smells of the world? But, because that would be a really depressing way to end the sermon, we do have also the character of God in there as well. And even though... This could be a sermon all about conviction, all about sin. And it is, to some extent. It is about those things in our life that we do need to iron out of us, the kind of stuff that we dredged out, the kind of shame that we do feel and that God wants to bring healing from. It is the power of God that took away David's sin in that moment. It says there too, Samuel twelve thirteen, the Lord has taken away your sin, you are not going to die. And later on it says, the Lord loved him. And he's talking about David and Solomon. The Lord still loved him even though he did do all these things that we are quite rightly looking at and going, that was a massive mistake. And I think for me, this is the bit that I just forget. I feel like I personally live my life quite avoidant of failure. I don't feel like I succeed things. I feel like I avoid failing them. Um, and I was trying to think of like a light example of this. But I guess exam results are quite light because they don't really matter. But I don't think I've ever received an exam result and thought, oh, I've done really well there. I think I've looked at it and gone, thank goodness I didn't mess that one up as well. And like the proof in the pudding is I could probably tell you from GCSEs every exam result I wasn't pleased about that didn't go well. GCSE RE sticks in the brain. And I had 16 years revision. It's unbelievable. But that's not how God treats it. We look at our failures, we point out our failures, and that's a process we need to go to, look at our sin and feel convicted by it. But then we do have a restoration, a redemptive, a rehabilitative process that comes from that. And I think what I've got a process of doing is carrying all of that with me and going, I've noticed my sin and I've apologised for my sin, but it's still mine and I'm going to claim ownership of it and I'm not going to hand it over to God to heal me from because that's my decision and I'm going to carry it because I'm responsible. And that isn't what God's saying. God is a merciful God, a forgiving God, and he wants to lift that from us and step us into freedom. And I guess if we look at the story that David goes through, it is the complete, complete replication of what we can go through today. We have a conviction, we have a confession, we have a, we have a version of justice. Now the Old Testament version of justice is quite often death, 
which is why Jesus' death is so important to us in the today. The child being killed in this story is really uncomfortable, but frustratingly and unfortunately that is the way Old Testament justice seems to operate. Then we have God being merciful, God offering us forgiveness, us operating in true condition, and then being redeemed. And it isn't that David's shielded from all the consequences we turned about in the justice. And it isn't that because we've apologised for stuff, we're shielded from all consequences from our mistakes in the day-to-day. But we can be redeemed and we can be restored. And God is in ultimate control of that. God has the ultimate authority over our lives and we can yield to that. And ultimately, this does point us towards Jesus. As we said, in the day that we're talking about in the today, which isn't the four and a half thousand years ago or whenever the David story was, But we do have a prophet of all authority. He rejected earthly power but took on spiritual authority and took on spiritual power and is offering us the freedom and the redemption and the rehabilitation that we can go through today. And that's what Hebrews 9 says. It says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And I think as we land and go into some form of response in some form of ministry time this isn't really like a massive call to action it isn't going to lead to um, a big financial offering potentially Um, but it is about some form of personal individual reflection and conviction we want to invite God into the room and over our lives and want to create a space and wait for God to reveal himself to us like we talked about when the gently nudging to us as the Holy Spirit comes into the room and individually talks to us and builds that relationship with us things will be revealed that we may want to talk about we may want to pray about we may want to share with each other and it might be that you get to the point of conviction there is something in that uncomfortability that sprang to mind and you thought that's something that I said I would do that I never did and I listened to that gas and then it just blurred into all the other gases in my life so actually I want to bring that back to the surface and I want to actually commit to doing something or it might be that you're thinking Actually, there's an action that I did five years ago that I don't think I've ever properly apologised for, and I don't think I ever made it right with that person. And there's an action there that could be happening. Or it might be that you're in my boat particularly, and you carry all of that shame and all of those burdens and all of those histories that you're like, I can't step into freedom because I'm still carrying all of the weight of the stuff that I feel ultimately responsible for, and I'm not giving any of it up. And it doesn't matter which one of those things that you may relate to, you may relate to something else. But I think we can all agree that as we pray, as we invite the Holy Spirit into the space, he is going to meet with us and he is going to reveal stuff to us. And I'll invite Luke up to do some more specific ministry time and how that's going to look. But before we do that, can I just pray for us all? Father God, we thank you that you are a God of ultimate redemption. We thank you for your son Jesus that died on a cross so we know that today we can stand here free from all of those sins, free from all of that baggage. Do you not only have ultimate knowledge over our lives, you know what those things are and you can meet us individually, but you have ultimate power over them, that you can lift those bags from us, that you can alter those circumstances that we think can't be altered. And thank you for David and Bathsheba and what we can learn from their stories and thank you that you were true then And your character is true then and still true now. And just thank you for this community of people that are willing to journey this together, that are earnestly seeking for a relationship with you and earnestly seeking your face. And thank you that as we journey through that, we will be bonded and we will be strengthened 
And I just pray the Holy Spirit will meet us here as we wait on him. Amen.